Well, it is that time of our worship service where we dig into the Word of God together, and I'm so excited to begin the book of uh, Galatians with you, the actual text. We went through about three parts of an introduction, uh, and um, <clears throat> don't even know if that was uh, comprehensive enough, but I think it was uh, satisfactory to get us all on the same page as we turn our attention now to this wonderful book, this text uh, of Galatians. Um, the study, or the title rather, of the study this morning is A Word Fitly Spoken. Um, and that's, uh, that's for Galatians chapter 1, first five verses, which is Paul's official greeting, his salutation. Uh, and I struggled with the, um, with the title, uh, struggling with how to capture its essence in, in a short title like this. And this morning it really came to my mind. A word fitly spoken. Solomon uses that several times in the book of Proverbs to refer to the importance of forthright speech, honest, truthful speech that a believer uses to minister to other believers. So I hope to prove to you that what Paul says in his opening words to the Galatians is just that. It's honest and truthful and will be sure to benefit his hearers if they don't reject what he says. Now, Galatians is a piece of ancient correspondence, right? A first-century letter. And it opens in a usual way with a customary greeting, a simple from-to formula that survives to this day, in fact, in our own correspondence, the cards that we stick on presents or on other, uh, other occasions, we'll say from, space, to, space, and then, of course, you fill it in accordingly. And it just makes sense that this from all of us to all of you construction should survive through millennia to our present day. There really isn't any better way or concise way to say it. As the Beatles song goes, I'll send it along with love from me to you. Now, the simple sentence that opens Galatians, if <clears throat> we were to boil it down to its basics, its basic components, reads this way. From Paul and from all the brothers with me to the churches of Galatia. That's the opening greeting in its basic form. <clears throat> but as we noted in our introduction to the book, while Paul's letter follows generally the, the customary pattern of first century letters, he did take some liberties of his own uh, as he filled out uh, or wrote uh, his own letters, and especially Galatians. He so arranges this particular salutation here in a way that sets the mood as best he could without actually being there. His additives and qualifiers reveal his intentions. And there's no way the Galatians would have missed it. Now, before I show you what I mean, <clears throat> we need to set the context. Paul had spent some time, as you know, with the Galatian churches during his first missionary journey. How long exactly? We don't know. The first time that he was there, he evangelized them, apparently led many to Christ, and perhaps even at that time set up churches. And once he had finished his church planting efforts in South Galatia, he retraced his steps, revisiting 
the new converts in these churches in each city to encourage and to strengthen them. You can read about it in Acts 13 and 14. We have Luke's comment in Acts 14, 28, that on this swing back of Paul's, Luke says, He had appointed elders for them in every church and prayed with fasting. They committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Now, Paul had to spend then some quality time in these, Galatians, in, this, in these Galatian towns in order to accomplish this, making disciples, planting churches. And he no doubt loved these people and won their trust and their admiration. When Paul first came to them, he had an illness. We don't know what that was, but apparently it made relationships with, with others very difficult. But they had received him as they would an angel. And they would have even given him their own eyes if they could, which was a, an expression in the first century that said, we would have done anything for this guy. They were tight, no question about it. But then, when Paul returned to his sending church back in Antioch, the Judaizers came to the Galatians and spent time with them. They were rather winsome. And some nice guys sort of came off as genuine. And they slowly started to change the outlook of the Galatian Christians away from the gospel of grace and to a gospel of works. They started convincing the Galatians that there was a missing piece in their thinking on salvation. They needed to supplement it with the Old Testament law. You have to be circumcised and keep the law if you expect to be full, a full-blooded Christian, they told them. Now, it takes some time for an error in a church to settle and then begin to influence thinking and behavior across entire congregations, and then a bit longer for it to be so noticeable that it would get back to the Apostle Paul. How did it find its way to him? Well, it's hard to say. Did somebody write to him? Did, did somebody go to him? We're not sure. But enough damage had been done in the Galatian churches to catch Paul's interest, and he addressed it immediately. So, one of the missing pieces in our context is what the Galatians were thinking just before they received this letter from Paul, or I should say, heard it read. What were they thinking? Remember, they loved him, right? He was their spiritual father. But now, now they had come to see the light from these Jewish Christians whom Paul will later say were not Christians at all. And their attitude toward Paul had to change, especially since they were led to believe that he was a fraud, that his message was false, and, and they had fallen for it. Had they written him off? Were they upset with him for, for tricking them? Well, maybe they felt sad that he, he couldn't be trusted anymore and that while they would miss seeing him again, they hoped that he would never come back. We just don't know. And while I don't like to spend too much time on areas where the Bible is silent, that can be dangerous, we're forced to wonder about this extended context and in what way was the Galatians' relationship with Paul strained? We're also justified, I think, in surmising that it was strained. 
And I believe the letter indicates that there was at least a strong tension now that existed between them. You know, the kind that you could cut with a knife. And Paul writes in these opening verses in what I would call a polemic style. Now, what is that polemic style? Well, a polemic is an argument for a particular view, but it's argued in such a way that it actually attacks the opposing view. We find this all over the Old Testament. An Old Testament writer, for example, who mentions that God created the sea and controls the tides may seem to the casual reader that the writer is exalting the sovereignty of God. And he would be half right. On further examination, he would also find that the writer had been speaking against pagan cults in a wider context, and when he mentions that Yahweh created and controlled the sea, he really was railing against the Canaanite religion. Well, how so? The Canaanites believed in a sea god who couldn't be tamed. He was always chaotic. So when the Old Testament writers said that God creates and controls the sea and uses the name of the Canaanite sea god, he attacks the prevailing, destructive, and influential Canaanite religion right at that moment. And any Hebrew reading an Old Testament passage would know this. He would say the sea god is not a god at all, but rather it is a creation of Yahweh's hand, and he controls it. It would be enough to wake up any Israelite who was starting to drift over to Canaanite practices, and it was an indirect slap in the face of the Canaanite religion. Now, as we come to Paul's salutation, he uses normal, a normal formula for first century Greek letters. But then he adds some polemic touches that express biblical truths in a way that also attack the corresponding and opposite error of the Judaizers that was sweeping the Galatians. And upon hearing these phrases read aloud in the church, the Galatians would have certainly caught Paul's drift. There are at least five such polemic statements, and we're going to consider them now. I'm going to preface each one of them with what was customary, just so you can see what was different. And I'm going to ask you to really put your thinking caps on today and pay special attention, because this is probably something that you're not used to thinking about. Okay, but it's very important. So here's what was customary. First part of verse 1 and all of verse 2 together form a customary greeting. From Paul an apostle and from the rest of the brothers with me to the other churches of Galatia. As I mentioned, the from to formula was typical in first century letters. Nothing to see here. Very, uh, very typical. And for Paul, it was customary to include in his greeting those missionary companions that were with him at the time that he wrote. He, he, he does this in 1 Corinthians uh, and 2 Corinthians. He does this in Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, and Philemon. Now, by the way, this was not to show that he answered to other men, just in case you're wondering. He didn't check with them first before he wrote or 
give his letter to them to edit. No, rather, it was a way of reminding the recipients that what Paul was about to write to them was not merely his individual viewpoint, but it it was the received doctrine of all Christians and its missionaries. Now, something else that's customary for Paul is to identify himself as an apostle. Seven of his ten letters begin with this identification. This term was an ancient one by Paul's time, but the New Testament took it over, and it uses it for three distinct groups of Christians. The first was, uh, was a group of Christians that simply were sent uh, by a sender with his authority to communicate a particular message. Believe it or not, in Hebrews 3, verse 1, it is used of Jesus himself. Jesus is called the Apostle of God. He was sent by God the Father with God the Father's authority to bring the message of good news in real life. And by the way, he also represented the Father in the most comprehensive and clearest way possible, John 1.18. Jesus uses the word in John uh, 13.16 for other messengers. He says a messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. He said... um, or rather, Paul said in Philippians chapter 2, verse 25, that, that Epaphroditus was also a messenger that the Philippians had sent to him in order to minister to his needs. And again, in 2 Corinthians eight twenty-three, Paul speaks of others who were closely with him, like Titus, as messengers of the church. So, apostle simply means a messenger. Now, there's a second meaning. It's built off the first meaning, and it's much narrower. It refers to men who were recognized as having a major role in the development of the early church, such as Barnabas and James, the head of the Jerusalem church, and Silas and Timothy and Silvanus. The third and narrowest use of all is the one that designates the twelve apostles with Matthias replacing Judas as the twelfth. One had to meet two specific qualifications in order to be an apostle, according to Acts chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. He had to have been an eyewitness of Christ from the time he was baptized by John to the time he ascended to heaven. And number two, he had to have been chosen by the Lord himself. Two qualifications. The twelve who met these qualifications were specifically called to lay the foundation of the church, as Paul spells out in Ephesians 2.20. He says, God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ himself as the cornerstone. Now they received power to perform miracles, to heal, cast out demons from people, all which were signs to verify their gospel message and their authority to proclaim it. And we know that the the second and this third specific categories, these categories uh, to which the word apostle refers, no longer exist today, especially the third, since no one can meet those qualifications. The specific task of establishing the foundation of the church at its beginning, is over. And when the the, uh, twelve apostles died out, there were no more. Now Paul puts himself in this last category 
of apostle, even though he wasn't one of the twelve and not with Jesus during his three-year ministry. Paul did, however, see the risen Lord on the road to Damascus at his conversion and was certainly commissioned by Christ to the ministry on that time, at that time, which makes him a bona fide apostle. He preached the same message. He was sent by the same Lord. He possessed the same authority as the twelve apostles, and the Jerusalem church recognized this. So once again, the customary opening from Paul an apostle and from the rest of the brothers with me to the churches of Galatia, that was customary. Nothing odd here. Here's what's not customary. Number one, I said there were five. Number one, verse 1b, or the second half of verse 1. Not from men or by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Hmm. This explanation of how Paul comes by his apostleship is unique to Galatians. It's not found in any of his other writings. Paul spells out very clearly that his apostleship was not from men nor through any man. That is to say, his apostleship was not derived from any human source, nor was it received from any human agency. Now, Paul used the strongest contrast possible here, but to explain the origin of his apostleship, he said, not by these men or by human agency, but by Jesus Christ. It was through the agency of Jesus Christ and God the Father. Jesus was the one who commissioned him, and God the Father was the one who raised Jesus from the dead and then revealed him to Paul in person in his Damascus Road experience. Now, what's the point of this phrase then? Well, as you look at it, you may be thinking, yes, it's a, it's a blessed truth. Jesus appeared to Paul, saved Paul, commissioned Paul to ministry, endowed him with apostolic authority. Amen. But if you're thinking that way, you're half right. It is a positive declaration. Amen. But it's also a powerfully negative statement as well. Negative? What's so negative about it? Well, you need to be thinking the way that the Galatians were thinking when they were listening to this being read. The moment they heard this clause, they got immediately uncomfortable, right? Can you see that? Their new teachers had convinced them that Paul didn't have apostolic authority at all. He didn't meet the two criteria of legitimate apostle. He never met Jesus. And his so-called Damascus, Damascus experience doesn't come close to resembling the formal and official action that the eleven took in choosing Matthias. His appointment should have been mediated through apostolic leadership. He had no claim to this office, and therefore his message was not true either. Now, if that's what they were starting to believe courtesy of the Judaizers, then you can imagine just how negative this verse was to them. It was offensive to them and a slap in the face to their Judaizing mentors. And this is the beauty of polemic. Boldly stating a rich and glorious biblical truth in such a way that it gives glory to God on the one hand and at the 
and then it attacks its corresponding counter view on the other. Paul would enlarge on this subject, or will enlarge on this subject in the course of his letter, and we'll see it as we go on. William Hendricks, Hendrickson rather, makes the valid point that Paul's stated position as an apostle commissioned by Christ himself means that his message is backed by Christ's authority and correct, and that, quote, those who reject him and his gospel are rejectors of Christ, hence also the Father who sent him and who raised him from the dead. That's the first polemical statement. Let's continue, though. Let's continue with what is customary. That's in verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. First century secular letters used rejoice for their salutation at the beginning of the letters. Jewish, uh, or first century Jewish letters normally open their letters with the, uh, their salutation with shalom, which means peace. The combination of grace and peace that we find in Galatians 1.3 is characteristic of Paul and many of the other New Testament writers. It was another customary element in their New Testament writing. Nothing, nothing to, to look at here. All very customary and usual. But, number two, there is a polemic even in these customary words. The formula of grace and peace no doubt seemed out of place or somewhat uncomfortable for those hearing it read who thought Paul as, as an illegitimate apostle touting this illegitimate gospel of grace. Paul says here that the grace and the peace are from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Both of them give unmerited favor that epitom that's epitomized in the saving work of Jesus Christ. In fact, in this letter, Paul will speak of the grace behind our salvation, sometimes as the grace of God, and sometimes as the grace of Christ. As he does in other of his letters with peace, the peace of God in Philippians 4.7, and the peace of Christ in Colossians 3.15. So peace is the result of God's saving grace. It's reconciliation that Jesus wrought for us. He reconciled us to God. Therefore, we have an abiding and enduring peace that's not determined on the basis of circumstance, but rather determined on the basis of our relationship with Christ who never changes. So our peace, this wonderful peace that comes by the grace of God, is enduring. But it also fell on Skeptical Galatian ears who were influenced by the Judaizing gospel of works. Jim Boyce makes the point in his commentary regarding this phrase about grace and peace. He says, quote, It is particularly appropriate and striking here, inasmuch as it occurs in a letter to churches where the sufficiency of salvation by grace was being questioned and perhaps even denied. In the same way, peace is also especially appropriate, for it denotes the state of favor and well-being into which men are brought by Christ's death on the cross and in which they are kept by God's preserving grace. To choose law, as the Galatians were doing, is to fall from grace. 
To live by works is to lose the peace with God that was purchased for believers by Christ's atonement, end quote. He saw it. Can you see the polemic here? Let me give you a third one, third polemic. Here's something that was not customary as well. Verse 4. Paul adds this lengthy qualification to his salutation. He says, who, that is Jesus, gave himself for our sins in order that he might rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of God and Father. First part of this is really at the heart of the gospel. Paul mentions more uh, of the very subject that he's going to be addressing in the body of the letter. It was nothing short of God's will that he save us by the work of Christ alone, not by works, not by religious or moral works, neither by Christ plus keeping the law as the Galatians were being led to believe. Christ alone. Here we have a polemical, a polemical statement that proclaims a glorious truth to the glory of God and at the same time attacks in a backhanded way the corresponding error that was circulating in Galatia at the time. The Judaizers, if they were present at the reading of this letter, well, they would have been irate at hearing this. And, and the foolish, misled Galatians would have taken great offense. As I say, uh, Boyce picked up on this. A number of the commentators that I've read through, all uh, very worthy and reliable, never mentions a polemic. They just mention how it is odd that when Paul mentions this, uh, it is in a, in a letter where it actually counters the opposite error. Only Richard Longnecker mentions the word polemic. F.F. F. Bruce notes that the Greek word for rescue occurs only here in the entire New Testament and that Paul used it in this place because there is a good chance that he, quote, was quoting from, was quoting from a form of words well known to his readers, which summed up the gospel which they had received and from which he feared they were now departing. You can see the polemics behind this. Paul uses a word that they knew and they believed and they understood, but now, in this new context for them, the word's offensive. It attacks what they believe, the error they believe. William Hendrickson sees a polemic going on as well, although he didn't use the word. He says, quote, the greatness and magnanimity of Christ's act of self-surrender is stressed in order to underscore the grievous nature of the sin of those who teach that this supreme sacrifice must be supplemented by law works. Leon Morris he has an insight at this point in his commentary that's worth mentioning. He says this, quote, In an opening salutation, Paul does not have room for much doctrinal matter, and it is revealing that he chooses this as the truth to emphasize. In this letter, we may be right in discerning an early blow against legalists. And I would say he's right. The essential Christian message is concerned with Christ's sacrifice of himself, not with our conformity to the law. That was the central truth of the gospel, and Paul does not miss any opportunity to emphasize it. End quote. Finally, James Boyce again concurs, explaining 
Quote, Paul now adds a statement affirming the substitutionary death of the Lord Jesus Christ and its outcome in the deliverance of men from sin. All this, he asserts, is according to the will of the Father. It is hard to imagine a statement better calculated to oppose an instruction of the will or supposed merits of man in the matter of attaining salvation. The phrase which does not occur and other Pauline greetings is undoubtedly added for the sake of the erring Christians in Galatia, end quote. Are you catching on? Are you seeing this? This is polemic. This is all calculated by Paul as he writes. He attacks the opposing view, the error, not so much directly, but by exalting the right view and in a way that makes it unmistakable to the Galatians. Let me give you yet another. Let me show you how Paul attributes Jesus rescuing us from this present age to the will of God and Father. Now, the declaration, this particular declaration of our God and Father, uh, would also have flown right in the face of the Galatians who had been led to think that freedom in the Christian life, interestingly enough, comes by submitting to the law for eternal life. Paul smashes this view by saying that it was the will of the Father to save a people for himself and set them free by the substitutionary work of Christ alone. That was God's will. And this polemic statement also sets the stage for, Paul, <clears throat> for Paul's further word on the very matter of, of our freedom in Christ in chapter 5. Continuing on, let me give you another. Paul references, Paul's reference to God the Father and Jesus Christ together in, in verse 3 as the source of saving grace and its result in peace is also polemical. Now let me show you what I'm, I'm getting at here. The customary way to refer to these two persons of the Godhead is God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ <clears throat> in that order. The Father first and then the Son. That's customary. That's what he does in, in verse 3. But back in verse 1, he inverts the order. He says, by Jesus Christ and God the Father. And by using this phrase, first in an uncustomary way and then in a customary way, Paul leaves no doubt that Jesus and the Father are the same in essence, and more to the point, are together the true source of saving grace and peace that it produces. More specifically, by adding whom God raised from the dead, to the phrase in verse 1, Paul shows that God the Father confirms Jesus' authority as the resurrection and the life. Another truth that cut through the heart of the Judaizers' message of eternal life based on the law and would have unsettled the Galatians very much. One final polemic here. It's one last thing that is not customary is Paul's doxology in verse 5. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. It is not customary for Paul to include a doxology at the beginning of his letters. 
This is the first and only in Galatians. At first glance, coming off the heels of Jesus rescuing us from the present evil age, it's obvious that Paul wants to draw a sharp contrast between this present evil age that's passing away and the eternal glory that will be ascribed to the sovereign Lord in heaven. The world as we know it, history as we know it, and the world system that the evil one runs will come to an end, all of it. And it will pass away because it's earthly and more mortal. But the Lord will receive glory from his saints forevermore in heaven. It's such a glorious concept. Now remember, this is a polemic. So Paul proclaims this glorious concept, but in a way that slaps in the face the Judaizers' error. Here's something else as we, uh, uh, that, that, that I think was certainly obvious to the recipients of the letter, even if it's not obvious to us at first glance. And it's part of Paul's polemic against the false teaching that they were beginning to embrace and that he'll deal with decisively later in the letter. What is it? Paul's doxology shows that God is not only the source of salvation, that is, by his grace, through faith in the work of Christ alone, not works, but it shows that God is to be glorified for such a glorious work as this. In other words, it's Paul's way of attributing his gospel to the will of God, who himself should be glorified for this specific part of his will. That is, the, 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 the salvation by grace part which the Galatians, of course, had been led to deny. He was claiming that the gospel of grace, which the Galatians were, were led to question, was God's will and glory to God for willing it. That's the idea. So what does all of this mean for us? What is the takeaway from our understanding of this very powerful and packed greeting which Richard Longnecker explains in his commentary as a, quote, rather matter-of-fact address that serves to signal Paul's agitation and indignation over the situation faced and to set a tone of severity that permeates this entire letter, end quote. What do we take away from this? It's polemic. Well, I have five takeaways from you, and I published them in the bulletin just for sake of ease. Five applications. Number one, according to what we read in this wonderful salutation, we can trust apostolic truth as God's absolute truth that leads to salvation, that gives assurance that we have been delivered from the power of sin and death, and that Paul's writings are part of that apostolic truth. What you hold in your hand, beloved, is apostolic truth. We can trust it, it's sufficient. It's absolute. It is the standard. By the way, that's what canon means. It is the norm for living. Nothing else. But what you read in the Bible is the norm for life. We have everything we need for life and godliness and the knowledge of the Son, Peter says. We have no reason to doubt, as James Boyce put it, that the logical outcome of the principle stated here for the New Testament as well as the Old is that prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 
And we say that Paul was one of those men. And Peter would later call Paul's letters Scripture, 2 Peter 3.16. There has always been attacks on the inspiration of Scripture and as well on the men who wrote it, claiming that they were bound by their culture and so on. But we know that Scripture is God-breathed and we can trust what it says. Timely word today. Number two, we take away this. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Paul's gospel is Christ's gospel, and the apostles' gospel, and the Old Testament gospel, and the gospel of salvation history, and the only one that God uses to save individuals. And we find the same gospel on the lips of sound and orthodox Christian missionaries from Paul's day all the way up to the present. It must be our gospel as well, and we must contend for it earnestly, as earnestly as Paul will in this letter. Number three, we take away this. We have been rescued from the power of this present age, this world system, to enjoy a freedom in Christ. The goal is stated here in verse 4, that Jesus rescued us from this present evil age. Now notice, to be rescued from this present evil age does not mean that we are delivered from it in the sense of being removed from it. Obviously, we're still here. This is not a contradiction of the great truth that God called us out of darkness and into light, or that he delivered us from the bondage of sin and death to freedom in Christ. Yes and amen to both of those truths. But Paul states here another truth besides. And that is that Christ has rescued us from this present age. And that means that while we are still in this present age, we are no, in no way controlled by it. We're no longer bound by a satanic agenda. We can say no to temptation. We can say no to sin. We have been enabled by, to live by kingdom principles. We belong to the kingdom of God and are therefore Christians before we are anything else. Before we are Americans, before we are citizens of this country, before we're anything that might define our existence. We are Christians citizens of this kingdom. As Bruce put it, quote, the result is not out of a material world, but from the evil which dominates it. I like how Leon Morris puts it, Christians are not meant to live in bondage to the ideas and manner of life of those among whom they find themselves. Christ died to deliver them from such bondage. And he did it in full accordance with the will of our God and Father. God wills something better for his people than an unthinking conformity to the worldliness of the age in which they find themselves. End quote. Paul would later write in, in Romans 6, verse 14, that sin will not rule over you because you are not under law but under grace. And in the same breath he continues, verses 17 and 18, thanks be to God that you are that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and have been set free from sin and have become slaves of righteousness. Praise God that we are not bound by satanic influences of this present age. 
If we are, we've put ourselves there. But we don't have to be there, and we shouldn't. Number four, Paul's doxology reminds us that we must do all things first for the glory of God who gave us this great gospel and second for the good of the elect. The order is important. Paul didn't write this letter for his health or to become popular. Certainly not that. But for God's glory and the benefit of the church. He would do what, we would do well to remember that God's grandest purpose, beloved, is always his own glory, and then, secondly, the good of his people. Now, sometimes we miss that first part, and we become impatient and even agitated when God hasn't answered our prayers immediately, or perhaps in the way that we've asked. God eventually delivered Israel out of Egypt according to his promise, but not until God made sure that Pharaoh and all of Egypt knew that Yahweh was Lord and received glory through the destruction of the Egyptian army. And that took ten plagues and some time, during which the Egyptians made life very difficult for Israel. And they complained. They grumbled. Oh, sure, you can read about it. They confronted Moses about it. What have you done? And so on. It's in, it's in uh, early chapters of Exodus, murmuring and so on. You see, they hadn't realized that they, what they hadn't realized is that they should want God's glory more than being delivered from the bondage of Egypt. If you desire God's glory more than what you hope God will do for you in any given situation, it will make no difference how God answers your prayer or when, because your concern will be that God might receive glory through your present situation. Five and finally, and I think this is my favorite, Paul's polemical approach should inspire us to imitate his faith. We should be so zealous for the faith in our day where our post-Christian culture is very much in our face with pagan and satanic lies, some which are blatant and bold, others which are more subtle, but very every bit as sinister. When Israel was surrounded by satanic pagan thought and the majority of the Israelites in the nation went whoring after other gods, the true champions of Yahwism learned to resist it all with polemic prayers. That is, prayers in which they kept convincing themselves and persuading themselves of the truth of Yahweh, and in a way that attacked the current dangerous pagan thought that surrounded them. When they declared in their prayers that God created and controlled the sun and the moon and the sea, they were attacking the sun god and the moon god and the sea god of the Canaanite religion, after which more than half the nation went whoring after. Not for the champions of Yahwism. We can take a lesson from them and learn how to exalt our great God, both in our prayers as well as in our lifestyle, in such a way that denounces and attacks the beliefs of any humanistic, Satanist, cultist, atheist, and religious person, and cause them 
to be even embarrassed for the for the views that express that they express in their lives. That calls for bold biblical living, the kind that the early Christians lived and by which they turned the world upside down. May God grant that his true church, here and now, throughout the world, will be so bold. And our God and Father, we are grateful for your time for this time that we have to give to you, give of our offerings, give of our our time, our our mental thoughts and abilities, our whole being as we come to worship you that way. We thank you for the word which has been preserved for us in this wonderful letter by the Apostle Paul who loved your people and wanted to see them thrive. We pray, O oh God, that as we continue to study, we will, we will also thrive, that we will take Paul at his word and that we will also imitate his faith in the way that he ministered at times to some who were faltering and doubting. Lord, we pray that the truths that we have rolled around in our minds this morning will continue to, to flourish and take root there and become for us a, a solid foundation on which we might stand and combat the... Uh, the, the error that comes our way dressed in, in so many different clothes and so many different identities, so many counterfeits out there. We pray, Lord, that we, we will be steadfast and alert and tenacious in the way that we live Christ to the world for your glory first and for the benefit of your church second. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.